Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. So when we talk about space, I mean, what, what do you kind of think of? Do you think about sending humans up into space and satellites? Or do you think about sending up a self-destructing robot into orbit? I mean, what a great idea that would be. But let's be serious with this, because this is not a joke. This is actually something that's going to be sent up. So finally, we are getting the world's first space cleanup mission, and European scientists say it's a fresh approach to fixing up the galaxy's junk graveyard. And you know, I've harked on and on about this. Our orbit is filled up with so much garbage. I mean, you've got chunks of dead satellites, discarded rockets, and paint flecks, and they've all fallen off various missions that we've sent up into orbit. But this new mission is called Clear Space 1, and it's going to take the first step in tidying up our extraterrestrial wasteland, according to the European Space Agency. So they've got this four-armed robot, and it's developed by the Swiss startup, it's called Clear Space, and it's going to latch onto debris, and then it dives back down to Earth, where both the machine and junk will burn up in the atmosphere. So it's quite a smart concept when you really think about it. Now, the robot's mission will target a cone-shaped part of the ESA rocket that was left in space in 2013. And if all goes well, follow-up missions will target larger objects before eventually trying to remove multiple pieces of junk at once. So Clear Space founder Luc Puguet said this is the right time for such mission and that the space debris issue is more pressing than ever before. Today we have 2,000 live satellites in space and more than 3,000 failed ones. And you know, work on this project, it's going to be beginning very, very soon, early 2020, and it's going to go through a series of tests at low orbit until its official launch in 2025. Now, our orbit kind of looks like a graveyard of space rubbish, especially if you look at those artist renditions of kind of how much low pieces we have up there. Uh, ever since the space age began in 1957 with the launch of the Soviet Union's Sputnik 1 satellite, there's been more junk than actual working satellites in space, and that was according to the ESA. Now, the ESA also estimates that there's about 170 million pieces of space debris orbiting the Earth. But apart from dead satellites, there's also spent rocket boosters and bits of machinery scattered by accidental collisions. And they're not just floating around peacefully, some pieces are moving faster than a bullet. Uh, because they move so fast, even the tiniest piece of cosmic junk poses an enormous threat, especially to other satellites and spacecraft. So the ESA Director General Jan Warner said, Imagine how dangerous sailing in high seas would be if all the ships ever lost in history were still drifting on top of the water. That's the current situation in orbit, and it cannot be allowed to continue. Now, these collisions are very dangerous, especially when we're talking about manned space flights. But 
you know, it could be an impact on our daily lives. We rely on satellites for essentially everything. You know, we've got weather forecasts, communications, GPS. But these pieces of debris, they can take centuries to leave our orbit. I mean, and that's if they leave at all. The problem's already so severe that it's self-permeating. So even if we were to stop all space launches immediately, the amount of space junk would continue to grow because of existing pieces of debris often colliding with one another, and then it breaks into smaller pieces, and it's an endless cycle. So for years though, NASA and the ESA and other space agencies have been studying debris removal technologies, and some of the ideas proposed including nets to just gather up the junk, harpoons, and then you've got spears, and all sorts of stuff to retrieve it, and even robotic arms. And for a long time, uh, we simply just didn't have the technology to address the issue. But in recent years, we have seen a lot of progress. For example, you've got Japanese scientists that are now developing a type of satellite that uses magnets to catch and destroy debris. Uh, just last year, an experimental device designed in the UK successfully cast a net around a dummy satellite, and it was a really promising step forward. Uh, another obstacle is figuring out how do we actually fund these projects. Now, the UK device, that cost 50 million euros, which is about 17 million dollars. And that's, that's quite cheap for space travel. Uh, the ESA's Clear Space mission has a budget of around 100 million euros, which is about 111 million US. Cleanup though, it's just one part of the solution. Preventing is another. Uh, independent companies like SpaceX, as we always talk about here, uh, they've been starting to design their satellites to intentionally plunge back down to Earth at the end of their lives instead of drifting into orbit. But so far, it's mostly kind of up to these space organizations to self-police and invest in being good patrons of the galaxy. So this next piece of news, this is big news. So NASA has just created a map showing how water is distributed on Mars. And wait for it, some of the water is frozen only 11 inches below the surface. Now at that depth, an astronaut is not going to need a big machine or anything to kind of access it. You'd only really need a nice shovel. Now we all know ancient Mars, it used to be warm, had water flowing all over its surface. I mean really, it had rivers, crater lakes, and even oceans. But now, most of that water is gone. Uh, what's left of it is frozen. And some of it's at the poles, uh, but much of it's under the surface. And it's been there for a long, long time. Now, with plans, you know, we're all thinking about Mars, especially with the SpaceX missions. It matters where resources are on that planet. Uh, and water, that's a chief resource. So its location is going to be determinant in future missions to go to the red planet. You know, it'd be really challenging to transport enough water to survive on Mars, so finding it there is going to be a real key to solving the problem. Now, the buried water ice can actually be used for drinking, and it can even be used for agriculture, and definitely to make rocket fuel. Missions to Mars need us to find resources that are available there, and that's called in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU, and that's something NASA is keenly interested in, but 
you know, making use of Martian resources, we kind of need to know what's available, where it is, and how much of it's there. Unfortunately, there's a lot of orbiting satellites, and they've provided much of the information that we need. As Sylvian Puquet said at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, you wouldn't need a backhoe to dig up this ice, you could just use a shovel. We're continuing to collect data on buried ice on Mars, zeroing in on the best places for astronauts to land. And when you have a look at what they're looking at, it looks like a swath in the Mars Northern Hemisphere has a lot of water. And like I said, it's only about 12 inches beneath the surface. But NASA, they're not relying on satellite data only to confirm the presence of underground ice. Back in 2008, the Phoenix lander captured images of subsurface ice. And two of these images show how some of it subliminated over the course of just four days. So meteor impacts, they also have confirmed the presence of subsurface ice. I mean, you had in 2009 NASA's releasing their MRO images of a 6 meter or 20 foot wide impact site. And the first image shows that there's ice. The second image from three months later shows most of it subliminated into the thin Mars atmosphere. But in this new study, the authors relied on three instruments, the climate sounder on the MRO and the thermal emission imagery system, which is the Themis camera, and gamma ray spectrometer, the GRS, on the Mars Odyssey. The climate sounder and the Themis are both heat-sensitive instruments, and they served a primary role in the whole study. And then you've got the GRS, which can actually detect the water and identify elements in the Martian regolith. So this heat sensing works because the ice is a much more effective heat conductor than the surrounding Martian regolith. And that means that even buried ice has a measurable effect on seasonal temperature measurements. And the ice's depth controls the amplitude of the actual effect. So alongside the heat sensing data, the authors use the data with the GRS on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and they also cross-checked it with radar data showing underground ice deposits with images of impact craters that showed exposed ice. And the ice deposits are also correlated with periglacial features, as the author says in their paper. So there's a multitude of locations on Mars that are scientifically interesting and, you know, they deserve to be visited. But a mission with human crew means practical considerations are way more important. And the big press release they gave makes it very clear. Quote, most scientists have homed in the northern and southern mid-latitudes, which have more plentiful sunlight and warmer temperatures than the poles. But there's a heavy preference for landing in the northern hemisphere, which is generally lower in elevation and provides more atmosphere to slow a landing of a spacecraft. And we know that a large part of the northern hemisphere contains an abundant water ice, so that really strengthens the argument for landing a crew over in that part. But the question is, who's actually going to get there first? Is it going to be SpaceX? Is it going to be NASA? Is it going to be the ESA? Either way, this is definitely a resource-intense area. And it really looks like this is where we're going to have the world's first Mars human permanent base. So it's kind of cool we talk about Mars, but what about around Jupiter and Saturn? While orbiting their respective planets in the unforgiving darkness are Europa and Enclodus. And you've got astrobiologists and they're kind of salivating at the prospect of life within them. And they hope to one day be able to explore it, not just with humans, but with marine controlled artificial intelligence. So back in November, NASA funded an expedition to put three autonomous submersibles through a literal trial by fire. Uh, they were left to their own devices and it was all to explore Colombo, which is a nightmarish, hyperactive, underwater volcanic mountain, which is just north of the Greek island Santorini. 
Richard Camilli, who's an associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or for short, HUI, said this is the most dangerous place you could operate underwater vehicles. Now, these drones, they were certainly up to the challenge. Uh, on board, they had computer systems that were able to kind of navigate on their own plans on the fly, but they also worked in coordination with each other, so it was like one big single electronic superorganism. And thanks to their shared intellect, all three robots survived. But not only that, more remarkably, adaptability allowed them to make brand new scientific discoveries. Exploring the oceans of Europa and Enceladus, it's going to be profoundly difficult. Manually controlling the robots on either would be way too cumbersome. It would take like 43 minutes to send a command from Europa back to Earth. And if you wanted to go to Enceladus, it's 79 minutes, so it's definitely not quick. Not only would that be a really high radiation environment and it would mess up with the transmissions, but communications from Earth they would really struggle to penetrate those rigid ice shells, which, you know, they've been estimated to be tens of kilometers thick. But we need to look at the grand scheme of things. Those submersibles, they're not really finished. They're far from finished. Uh, their software and the designs are being continually tweaked over time. And additionally, you've got these extreme environments, including the frigid icy waters of the Arctic. And along with the deeply complex logistics of actually sending a mission to the gas giants, it's pretty safe to say that sending robots like this, you know, diving into Europa or Ensel Lattice, it's going to remain a dream for quite some time. After all, it's difficult enough to just place a lander or a rover on the moon and even Mars. And we're yet to figure out how we can deploy a quadcopter on Mars's exotic satellite, Titan. So diving into an extraterrestrial ocean, that's on a whole new level of thinking. But that experiment that took place at Colombo is a real example of one of the best things we can do in the meantime, which is practice the real thing, make sure we know how we're doing it, because we've got to try and get these things to work on Earth before we even think about sending them elsewhere. So we've got another big piece of news. NASA has declared the assembly complete on the core stage of the first space launch system, which is signaling a long-awaited transition from manufacturing to testing as the core stage is set to move to the nearby Stennis Space Center in Mississippi for a hold-down firing next year of its four shuttle-era main engines. And I thought it would probably be a good thing to talk about. What, what are these engines? How's this all going to work? Well, I'll tell you, these four engines, they're RS-25 engines, and they're going to power the first SLS core stage. And it was a similar design installed on the Space Shuttle. Once the stage, which is built by Boeing, arrives at the Senna Space Center in Mississippi, the teams will lift the rocket up on a B-2 test stand, which was originally built to test the first stage of the Saturn V moon rocket, and they're going to do a series of structural and modal testing. So that's fueling rehearsals, an eight-minute firing of all four RS-25 engines to really demonstrate the SLS core stage's readiness for flight. Then the rocket's going to be shipped over to NASA's Kennedy Space Center to begin final stacking with a pair of side-mounted solid rocket boosters and an upper stage, plus an Orion crew capsule for the whole SLS to launch on trajectory to the moon in 2021. Jim Bridenstine said, Think of it as NASA's Christmas present to America. We're going to move out of this facility, we're going to take it to the Stennis Space Center, we're going to do a green test run, we're going to prove its capability, we're going to get it to the Cape, and we're going to be ready to launch American astronauts to the moon again. 
So as we know, NASA, they first started working on the SLS program back in 2011. Following the cancellation of the Constellation Moon program, the development timeline at that time was calling for the first launch of the SLS in 2017. So it was a little while ago, and since 2011, NASA has spent more than $15 billion on developing the Space Launch System. And a very specific target launch date for the SLS hasn't been announced properly by NASA. They've just said so far the year that they want it to be ready. The SLS is a centerpiece of the Artemis program, which is NASA's initiative to return humans to the lunar surface by the end of 2024, which is a goal that was set earlier this year by Mike Pence. And you know, the Artemis 1 mission is 2021s, it's not that far. That's gonna be an unpiloted test flight off the SLS and their Orion spacecraft, which is gonna be designed to carry up to four astronauts into deep space, followed by a crewed mission, which is gonna be around 2022 to the moon. The Artemis 3 mission is scheduled for 2024, and that would attempt the first lunar landing of astronauts since 1972, and that's according to NASA's current plans. So this coming year, 2020, we're gonna be witnessing some major historical events unfold right before our eyes. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8 a.m. on X-Ray FM or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.